think the the whole idea that it's too good to not believe is a good bridge between last week and this week. Because we've been, we're now just a little bit past the midway point of Matthew. And in the past couple of weeks, um, we've been seeing a lot about who Jesus is and what he's coming to do. And then that kind of leaves us with the question, though, but what does it look like to have faith in all of this? And that's where we're going to be at today, and actually that's where uh, our, our older kids are going to be at as well. Um, if you guys are in here and you're uh, in fourth or fifth, third, fourth, fifth grade, um, you guys can head out. Abigail will meet you at the back, and then you guys can go over to the, the back room, the, back kid, the big kids' room, um, and you guys can have your, your study. So, um, yeah, you guys can head on. And on back if you want to, or you can hang out here with us. We've been, um, Carol and I have been praying about a, you know, getting to expand the, the kids ministry. And it's been cool to see how the Lord has been doing that. Because this is, I mean, this is a big deal. You know, what, what Jesus has been after, what his kingdom looks like, what faith in him looks like. These are things that Jesus has been I mean, really stressing week in and week out over and over again with his disciples saying, guys, you have to understand what I'm talking about if you're going to be my disciples. And so we've been grateful that we've been having uh, more of an opportunity to reach that with our kids. I'm grateful just to get to keep walking through this, this book with you guys on Sunday mornings because um, Matthew keeps revealing a lot to me that I, I've either missed or just had not thought so much about. But as we are coming out of last week where we really see who Jesus is, right? Plain and simple, we saw he's our Lord, he's our Savior, and he's the only one who can do this. Matthew now kind of follows this up with, with some pictures of, from Jesus of what does it look like to actually put your faith in him, right? Because this is a work that Jesus is, is calling people to do. It's something that you know, we would hope we would understand, and I realize some of you in here, yeah, th this is a message that, sure, we've, we've probably heard some of this before. But Jesus keeps showing even his disciples, you know, there, there may be fringe characters in some of these stories, but we're, we're going to notice that the things Jesus says and does really point to that group as saying, guys, I know you have seen this, I know you've heard this, I really need you to get this if you're going to be my followers, if you're going to be leading <laughs> my church. So we're going to see this this morning, guys, from Matthew chapter 15. Faith in Jesus focuses on changing hearts more than regulating actions. It's a fundamental piece of Jesus' ministry that he's really trying to make sure people understand. Why? Because in doing so, we bring people to God. So let's read through Matthew 15. We'll kind of see this, this thing unfold. Beginning in verse 1. Then the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do you disciples break with the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, well, if anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. 
You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me because they are teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and he said, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles a person. We're going to come back to that one, but I'll read it again. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came to him and said, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Well, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Well, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you still also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there, and he withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, Well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there. And he walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on a mountain, and he sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put him at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, Now I have compassion on the crowd. Because they've been with me now for three days, and they have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on their way. And the disciples said to him, Well, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Well, seven, and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them, and he gave them to the disciples Disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. They took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. Lord, we really want to know you today. Father, we confess that it's, it's difficult. Father, because of, you know, whether it's things that have happened in our lives, whether it's things people have said, things people are done, 
just the situation we find ourselves in, Lord, it, we don't always feel like we should be able to follow you. Father, we're, we're often really quite aware of the things that hold us back, of the things that tell us we shouldn't be able to be used by you to bring you glory in your kingdom. God, it is humbling each week that as we come here, as we go to your word, as we watch Jesus revealing time and time again, guys, this is who I am. Guys, this is what I have come to do. Father, that we find a, a place for our brokenness and a place for a new life for us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this that you've done all because of your grace, all because of your, your love toward us. Father, and your desire to satisfy every part of who you are. May we understand uh, what Matthew is getting at, what Jesus is trying to help his disciples see. Father, because we are sitting in the same place to, today. You know, we, we aspire to be as his disciples, to make you known, to know you more. So we need to hear this, Lord. May we hear it. In your name we pray, amen. So there's, there's something that Jesus has been touching on in different places, but it really kind of comes to the center stage this morning. He's really nailing down for his disciples and for everyone else around them, but mainly his disciples, what does faith look like? Right? If they're going to believe that he is the Savior, he is the Lord, he is the Messiah, which is what we saw last week, then what, what does our faith do when we're putting it in him? And the thing that keeps coming up in chapter 15 is just simply that faith in Jesus focuses on changing hearts more than regulating actions. And now, <laughs> finally, we get to have our friends, the Pharisees, back. Because uh, we've missed them the past couple of chapters. But they show up here in verses 1 through 2. And they question Jesus, why are your disciples not washing your hands before they eat? You know, mom always said it was a good idea to wash your hands before they eat. I never thought that it was a, a theological thing. But apparently for the Pharisees it was. Why? You're, you're breaking the tradition of the elders. Verse 2. It's, it's important though. Notice this is not part of the Old Testament law. Okay? The Pharisees were really good at saying, well, if the law is right here, we don't ever want to get to the point where we're right up against the law. So we're going to put a guardrail right here that when we're walking, if we hit this guardrail, we'll never actually get in danger of breaking the law. And one of the things the Old Testament law was, was really big on was keeping yourself clean, keeping yourself pure. There were things you couldn't touch, places you couldn't go at certain times of the day. It was a lot to remember. So the Pharisees were like, well, if we just always wash our hands before we eat, We'll always be clean, right? We'll always be pure. So they put that guideline in place, and really, it, it doesn't sound so bad, right? And I, I love, guys, watch. Jesus doesn't pound the Pharisees for making the guideline. He doesn't tell them it was a bad idea to put a practice in place to keep them from breaking God's law, okay? Please don't read that into Jesus. Don't read that into where we're going today. But what was the issue? Verses 8 and 9 tell us that they have honored 
Jesus honored God with their lips, saying, we want to stay good with the law, Jesus, so we're going to put this practice in place. But their heart is far from me. And we see practically what that looked like. In vain do they worship me, Jesus says in verse 8 9, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. The Pharisees had taken those guidelines, those things that were going to help regulate their actions, and they had now elevated it to the same status of what God was really after, which we see Isaiah's prophecy tells us is the heart. And he further reveals in verses 3 through 7, man, here's, here's what you guys are failing on, right? You're putting in all these practices that are good, but you're missing the heart of the law. Verses 3 through 7 tell us this, this weird tradition, um, it, you know, us reading it as Americans, it doesn't make much sense to us. But in some way it should. There was, you know, one of the Ten Commandments God gave to his people was honor your father and mother. And in the ancient world, that very practically carried out is, you know, when your parents got older, you took care of them. You know, financially, physically, like you, you kind of became the caretakers for your parents. But the, the Pharisees had developed this practice saying, well, we know that's true. But there's also a ton of laws about sacrifices, and so, so maybe if we, if we want to do good keeping up with sacrifices, if we say we're going to set something aside for a sacrifice, then it's not actually something we have to use to honor our parents with. To give you a practical example, it would be like if your father or your mother needed a ride to the doctor's office, and you went out with your money and you purchased a really beautiful car, um, you can use your imagination as to what a beautiful car would look like. For, for me, I'm picturing a old school, white on top, red on the bottom, VW Volkswagen van. So it, it would be as if I went out and found a good antique one, and, and my parents come to me and they say, Jordan, like, I need a ride to the doctor. And I tell them, gee, that would be nice, except I bought this van for ministry. And so I need to have this van in perfect shape. Somebody could call me and I could need to run to the hospital or I should need to run someone to the airport to go on a mission trip. Like I need this van for ministry so I can't take you to the airport. That, that is a practice that the Pharisees had put into place to say, well, mom and dad, thank you for what you've given me. I've turned around and used it to glorify God. So now I, I can't use it to glorify you. Jesus says, are, are you kidding me? To the effect of you guys have focused so much on whether you're doing all the right things. You've completely missed one of the most blatant and obvious commandments of God's, God's law. It's, it's right there in Exodus. Honor your father and mother. Jesus says you have completely missed what the law was intended to do. And just in case people are going, well, what, what was the law intended to do, Jesus? He goes, verse 10 and 11 says, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it's what comes out of the mouth. This is what defiles. That, that word defile is, is kind of a play on words. It's a Greek word that means koino, which literally means to make common. Right? So we're talking about if God has made us for life with him, if he's called us to a holy life, right? to be holy is just to be set apart. And now Jesus is saying, well, if you want to undo that, take what was made holy and just make it as if it was everything else. He says it's what comes out of your mouth that actually 
defiles you. And he gives them an analogy. Verse 17, verse 18, he says, Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles the person. He's using this analogy, guys, to point out, here's where the Pharisees missed it. They assumed that God's law was all about regulating things on the external. Right? That that would then make faith in Jesus about saying, Jesus, give us a new standard to put in place, and that's the spectrum through which everything's going to go through. Right? And I, I want to be particularly careful, because Jesus doesn't condemn the guidelines. Right? Jesus doesn't come after the Pharisees and tell them it was bad for you to try to put things in place, to try to live out a, a faith, to try to live out the design that God gave. Jesus doesn't tell them <laughs> that they were wrong for doing this. But Jesus says, when you have done this and you have neglected the heart, here's what happens. Verse 13, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be rooted up. Right? Jesus says there is something that has to happen first. And if that part hasn't happened, whoosh, it's gone. Right? He says, verse 14, let them, the Pharisees, alone. Why? Because they are blind gods. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. He says, they have become so focused on regulating the actions, they, they don't even know the God who they're trying to regulate anymore. They don't even know the image of Christ that they're even trying to achieve because their hearts are nowhere near it. To kind of think about the analogy, and it, it's kind of weird to describe, but it was very vivid. It stuck in my head all week. When you eat something, right, let's just assume because I know uh, our bodies don't always function exactly how they're supposed to, but let's assume for a second that our bodies are, are functioning perfectly. When you eat something, right, it goes into your mouth, it goes down into your stomach, and Jesus is saying that you know, notice how God has designed you almost to be like filters, right? Your body knows how to process the food that comes in to separate what is healthy, what should be kept, you know, what should be stored here, what should be sent for nutrients there. And then it takes the waste and it gets rid of it naturally. Jesus says this is what happens when stuff comes in. God has actually made us to be able to filter out what's good and what's not and to naturally Get rid of the excess one, one way or another. But Jesus says, when stuff comes out, there's no filter. To put it in, in the biological terms, your poop has been well filtered by the time it comes out of you. But there is no filter for your vomit, right? When something is coming up, everything is coming up. And it keeps coming up until it is all out of you. As, as Jesus says, look, it's interesting because what he's getting at is there is something inside of us that when it's right, when it's functioning, it can actually filter and discern. But that part has to happen first. He's talking about the heart. If our hearts are right, God's spirit is actually able to work in us, to filter, to discern what is of God, what is not, right? To take what comes in and process, okay, this part is healthy. This part is from God. This part is clearly not from God. We don't even need that. We can let that go. Jesus says this is, this is how our bodies were made. But what just comes up, 
that reveals what's really on the inside because there is no filter. Everything is just coming out. This is what Jesus is, is pointing to, that action alone, just kind of regulating all the stuff, that by itself doesn't give us this discernment that we're after. You know, I think, you know, I've, I've had friends who, you know, they can listen to Christian music, you can watch Christian programs, you can get Christian education, all your friends can be, you, you can essentially live in a Christian bubble. But that alone does not make you Christian, right? It is what is coming out, not just what is coming in. This is what Jesus alludes to in verses 19 and 20. He says, this is because our faith is defined by what comes out, right? Out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, immorality, theft, false witness, slander, right? These are the things that come out. This is what defiles. Therefore, if what comes out is what defiles, what comes out also should be what saves if it is Christ in the heart. And I realized, you know, this, when I'm thinking about it this week, I'm like, but, but Lord, there are so many scriptures in the New Testament that talk about guarding the heart, guarding the mind, guarding the good deposit. And it, it, was, it was a little exercise that I'll, I'll spare you how much time I spent on it this week. But it was interesting that I, I looked at the Greek words that get used in those verses. And it's, it's interesting because the, the rest of the New Testament authors, they pick up on what Jesus is saying. The two verbs that show up time and time again in places like when Paul tells the Ephesian elders to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That one is Prosecco. There's another place where Paul tells Timothy to guard the deposit entrusted to you. 1 Timothy 6, Fulaso, right? These words, when you think of guarding, you think of an external struggle, right? Like I got to be on guard against something that's going to come in here and take something from me. But both of these verbs are internally focused. That when scripture in the New Testament talks about guarding your faith, it's more of a look in and make sure your heart is good, rather than saying keep all the external stuff out. Now again, again, Jesus has not told the Pharisees that the guidelines were bad. But what he has said is that they're essentially worthless if the heart is not right. That is because as the New Testament authors pick up on, uh, Jesus is, is trying to put before his people, faith in him focuses first on changing hearts. And there's a huge reason why Jesus stresses this that becomes abundantly clear in the second half of chapter 15, right? Watch what happens when he interacts with this, this Canaanite woman. I mean, first off, it's, this is kind of a weird story because you see this woman, verse 21, Jesus has withdrawn. He's gone to another land. Verse 22, she is coming out. She is crying after Jesus, have mercy on me, right? So from last week, she gets Jesus as the Savior, right? Have mercy on me, Jesus. You are able to save and to deliver in a way nobody else can. She says, oh, Lord, son of David, right? Jesus, your Savior. Jesus, your Lord. And Jesus doesn't answer her, thinking, Jesus, if someone is crying out after you, the very truth that you're trying to get people, why is, why is Jesus doing nothing? 
And right after verse 23, it says, but he did not answer a word. Immediately, his disciples came. Ooh. There's our main players. Right? Just as Peter earlier said, Jesus, explain this parable about what's coming in and what's coming out to us. Now the disciples are coming back. See, what Jesus is doing by not answering her, he's not necessarily testing this woman's faith, although it's a pretty good faith that just keeps persisting. He's trying to see what's going to come out of the disciples at this point. What's coming out of them? And their disciples are begging Jesus to send the woman away. And Jesus almost kind of feeds this a little bit in his disciples, right? He says in verse 24, well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Kind of telling this woman who we're told in verse 22, she's, she's a Canaanite woman. I, I'm not really sure why you're asking me to be your Messiah because I, I was only supposed to come for the Jews is what Jesus is implying. And then in verse 26, he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. So now he's called her a dog, which is uh, disrespectful to say the least, but he's feeding a mentality the disciples would have known. Because the Jews had in their minds, everybody else is just not quite as good as them, right? If they are the chosen people of God, the people with God's law, the people who have learned what God is supposedly looking for, and they're able to kind of check all the boxes to get everything right, to them, that puts them in a different tier. And so to that way of thinking, you would say, well, then, Jesus, if you're the Messiah and you're coming back to deliver, then what you really must be coming to do is to save all the people who have been able to put all the pieces together, right? You must be coming back to deliver all the people who have figured it out, right, Jesus? And there was a, uh, there's a play on words the Jews would use to call the Canaanites and other people dogs compared to themselves, the actual children of God. And here the woman comes in verse 27 and she responds with, at this point in Matthew, this is one of the most profound theological statements that hasn't come from Jesus. Where she says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She says, yes, Jesus, but there's a way that even the dogs can be like the children. In that moment, she's saying, Jesus, I know that you have not just come to save the Jews. You have come to save the Gentiles. And if that is true, then faith in you cannot be based on just regulating things as the law said. There has to be something else there. And what have we seen in this woman? She's already called Jesus Savior. She's already called Jesus Lord. And now she recognizes, Jesus, you've not just come to save those who did all the action regulation correct. You came to save those who would call on you as Savior and Lord. And is to this, Jesus says, woman, great is your faith. Verse 28. It is this faith that brings this woman to God, right? Nothing is going to keep her 
from God at this point. It's this faith that she's able to actually understand the will of God. She picks up on something that has not really yet been fully revealed to everybody else. But she sees this in the work that God is doing. It is this faith that empowers her that when she goes to God, she's able to bring life to others. Because Jesus literally turns right around and says, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter is healed instantly. Verse 28. It is this faith that Jesus has been after in his disciples and he gives them an opportunity right he shows them look I'm playing into this mentality that I know you have somewhere in there and Jesus says and watch this woman point out that's wrong watch how this woman understands no it's not based on the action regulation it is based on the heart being changed. And then verses 29 through 31, Jesus goes and he keeps proving to his disciples, do I not have the power when the heart is changed to do all these other, all these other things? And then 32 through 39, he even gives them an opportunity to show up and to watch the same exact healing he did last week. Those of you who thought maybe I had slipped and was reading chapter 14, Right here, Matthew puts these right next to each other, right? Jesus calls his disciples and says, I'm going to let you watch this happen again, right? Now that you understand I'm Savior, now that you understand I'm Lord, now that you're watching me tell you that what faith with me looks like is changing hearts, is there no way that I could not feed all these people? Because, verse 32, I have compassion on them. I am not sending them away. And the disciples still miss it. Verse 33, where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place? Like, they still do not understand this. And where they're hung up is interesting. Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place? That is the same phrase they used last time in Matthew 14, verse 15. They say, Jesus, this is a desolate place. Desolate is the same word that is often translated wilderness. It's simply just land without value. Jesus' disciples keep looking and saying, but there's nothing good that can come in. So what are you going to do, Jesus? Jesus, we've been trained our entire lives to say we got to focus on what comes in. This land can give us nothing. So Jesus, what, what should we expect you could do. And Jesus says, at this time, he doesn't even call out. He says, how, how much bread do you have, right? How much do you already have in your heart? W watch what I can do. And he performs the exact same miracle. Same miracle. It matters to Christ that this is our faith. That our faith is centered on our hearts being changed more than just on regulating actions. Because what we're seeing is when hearts are changed, church, people come to know God. And if you watch, if you watch the church all throughout history, the times that we have been most fixated on getting all the external pieces right are the times where we have pushed people away the most. If we don't believe that, we can see the exact pattern is happening right here in chapter 15. Because the Pharisees and the scribes, 
ones who are always fixated on the external, they show up and they are looking for a way to distinguish themselves apart from Jesus. They stir up division by the way of saying, hey, we in our temple, we don't do that. So Jesus, you, you must be in the wrong over here. Right? Jesus calls the Pharisees with this regulating mentality blind guides. Right? They're not capable of leading people to God. You know where they are capable of leading people, though? To a pit. The disciples, literally, when they see this Canaanite woman coming, and they don't see Jesus doing anything, they beg him to send her away. Jesus, it will look so bad on us if we have a Canaanite woman following us around. Jesus, this is not going to be good for us and for our image and the things we're trying to do. Would you please get rid of her? And then Jesus tells the disciples in verse 32, I am not going to send the crowds away. Why? Because he knows exactly what they said last time. Jesus, just get the crowds away. When we are focused on regulating the action more than changing the heart, we push people away. But I love how in this chapter, just as we've been seeing all throughout Matthew, man, when that heart is right, when that heart, I mean, look at the disciples, they're struggling to get this, but even when their heart wants to get it, even if it doesn't fully understand it, they still watch this happen, right? They still get to see God's life taking fruit. So God is gracious, right? He is very gracious toward us. That even when we're not fully aware of what this looks like, he still shows us, look, when we are focused, when we are striving for our hearts to be changed, what will he not do? What will he not do? And I love, if you look over in Ezekiel, that this is not just something random. This is also not just something that Jesus is doing that is almost a new work of God. Jesus, as we saw earlier in Matthew, being the fulfillment of God's word, is fulfilling something God said would happen earlier. If you look at Ezekiel chapter 11, verses 19 and 20, they say this. It says, God telling Ezekiel, go tell my people who are currently in exile, I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. Same exact thing Jesus is doing is something that the Old Testament said way earlier. This is what God has always been about. And I think as we think on this this picture we're seeing from Jesus, this passage here from Ezekiel, there's two big encouragements I want to land on as we close today. The first is just to encourage you guys, what is your mission? Right? As people of faith, what is, what's our mission? In the Ezekiel passage, there are two different works. Right? There's a work that is walking in the statutes, keeping the rules, following the decrees, keep my laws, I think is how the NIV puts it. One of regulating actions, and there's one of changing hearts. Of a heart of stone being removed and a heart of flesh being placed. Right? Both of them are works that God does, okay? Let's hold these together. Both of them are works that God does. Both of them are works that God promises he is continuing to do. These are works he does in his people, right? 
They're held together. But which one comes first? Which work has to be done for the other to also be done? Church, you and I will never in our lives, we'll never convince other people. We will never follow God's decrees, keep his laws, be his people. Unless we receive a heart of flesh to replace our heart of stone. And so there's a big encouragement here. What is our mission, right? What are we working towards? One of the big things that Abigail and I were praying about before we came to this church, it, this, was, this was before we met you guys when we were still uh, at our church in Raleigh. The Lord had just really put on our hearts before we were even thinking of leaving Raleigh was to pray for soft hearts, to just pray that wherever we would get to be, whatever people we get to minister with, that hearts would be soft, right? Not that we all perfectly understand everything, not that we all have everything perfectly figured out, but that there would be a heart of flesh. Because when there's a heart of stone, nothing looks like God. When there's a heart of flesh, oh, we can learn, we can grow, we can get there. And it was cool, as we were talking with Carol and as we were talking with the leadership team here, we said, ooh, there sound like there's some pretty soft hearts there. And the more we've gotten to know you guys and we've continued to pray this, we would say, yeah, there, there remain some pretty soft hearts here. And I hope you guys would see just from the different you know, things that we've emphasized or the way the small groups have been structured, all the things that we do are really geared towards keeping and growing in this, this soft-heartedness. And has God not changed us over the past two years? Right? This is why we have our mission, our vision, our values, the, our definition of a disciple, which I wanted to reiterate for those of you who haven't heard it or it's been a while. But this is why our mission at New River Fellowship, we are a community on mission, submitted to Christ and committed to disciple making, right? If we achieve that, we can stay with soft hearts. This is who we want to be as disciples because disciple is a word that we use a ton. We call it a devoted, developing, deployed follower of Jesus Christ, right? If we've got soft hearts, we're devoted, we're developing, we're deployed. That's why our vision, if we're going to be those three things, then we got to be loving, as Christ, we got to be learning from Christ, and we're going to be living in Christ. And it's why we've said if we want to see all those things done, rather than just check off a list of things to do, we got to make sure our hearts are after the right stuff. And so we had six values that we walked through from Ephesians. We value Christ as our life, number one, reconciliation to others and to God, number two, sharing and experiencing God, number three, transformational unity in Christ, number four, the image of God in ourselves and others, number five, the power of prayer, number six. So what is our mission? And hopefully to that end, you've seen that mission being lived out, being driven here at New River Fellowship. And if you believe this is, you know, as, as what we're seeing through faith, what we are doing as followers of Christ, come join us with this, right? What's your mission? Second encouragement, what's your heart? I realize, and I, I really struggle with this because it, it's weird. It felt weird for me to say we need to have soft hearts, we need to have soft hearts, and not really explain what a soft heart is. Um, but I, 
you all have probably been here long enough. You don't want another 45 minutes. I mean, we, we could go on for a long time about what a soft heart looks like. There's just three quick things from Matthew 15 that I think we see Jesus making clear about soft hearts. First, they're full of God's word. Right, when the Pharisees come and they say, you know, Jesus, why aren't you doing what we're doing? They're doing a good thing. They're doing a thing that really sounds like it should be helpful. But how does Jesus know whether it's really of God or not? He knows God's word. He knows God's word. In fact, John tells us Jesus is the word of God. If you want to know what God's life is like, we need his word. So a soft heart is a heart that is full of God's word. Second, a soft heart is full of God's grace. Right? When Jesus interacts with the Canaanite woman, his disciples have the mentality, Lord, Lord, this, this lady is not good for business. And Jesus has the mentality, you don't quite understand my business yet, disciples. Because this is exactly what I have come to do. The woman's faith is great because she recognizes when we call on Jesus as Savior and Lord, God's grace is available to us. So do we make the grace of God available to others? A soft heart is full of God's grace. Lastly, a soft heart is full of God's compassion. Jesus, in verse 32, tells his disciples, I have compassion on this crowd, right? They don't all know who I am, but they need me. And how are people going to know if they need me? Because I have compassion on them. So soft heart, full of God's word, full of God's grace, full of God's compassion. What's your mission? What's your heart? As we consider these this morning, let us pray. We say, oh God, remind our souls today that it is our duty and our privilege to rejoice in you. You require it of us so that we may receive all your favors of grace. Oh my soul, rejoice then in the giver in his goodness. Be happy in him, O my heart, and in nothing but God. For whatever a man trusts in, from that he expects his happiness. He who is the ground of thy faith should be the substance of thy joy. From where then come heaviness and dejection when joy is sown in thee, promised by the Father, bestowed by the Son, ingrained by the Spirit, thine by grace, thy birthright, in believing, art thou seeking to rejoice in thyself from some evil motive of pride and self-reputation, O my soul? For I have nothing of mine own but sin, nothing to move God to be gracious or to continue his grace towards me. If thou forget this, my soul, thou wilt lose thy joy. Art thou grieving under a sense of indwelling sin, O my soul? Let godly sorrow work repentance as the true spirit which the Lord blesses and which creates fullest joy. Sorrow for self opens rejoicing in God. Self-loathing draws down divine delights. Hast thou sought joys in some creature comfort, O my soul? Look not below God for happiness. Fall not asleep in Delilah's lap. Let God be all in all to thee. And joy in the fountain that is always full.
Father, remind us today this life is available in your Son. And remind us that when our hearts are changed, oh, what won't you do, Lord? What things about us, what things about others, what things about our world will you not change? Will you not bring into your image and keep there when our hearts are good? Teach us to be soft-hearted, Lord. In your name we pray.